Thank you very much, Pastor Gareth. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord again. I feel more like at home. I had the visitor from Kenya introduce herself. And in Kenya, when you say praise the Lord, they always say it twice. So I would say praise the Lord, and you would answer, and I would say praise the Lord again. And you have to answer. So can we try it? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord again. Yes. So it's a great privilege that I have to be with you this morning. Thank you to the leadership of this ministry for inviting me. Um, my name, like Pastor Gary said, is Billy Paul, and it's been a great nine months. So at the end of this month will be ten months of being taught and being equipped in preaching the word and in shepherding a church. And I'm hoping and praying that by God's grace and with his strength, I'll be able to participate in a church plant in Sudan and in the future if the Lord tarries as well in Ethiopia as well. So do keep me in your prayers for that. This morning I'd like to share a quick word with us from the book of Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 9 through to 20. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to Hebrews. And I'll read it for us, if you're there. Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 9 through to 20. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promises. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this assured and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner and on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you because the entrance of your word brings light and gives understanding to the simple. We ask that as we consider your word this morning, that it would search our hearts and conform us more and more to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that as I preach your word this morning, that I would decrease and you would increase that you would take the glory and be glorified in us and through us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 
I do not know if you're familiar with this saying, but I guess you are, that promises are made to be broken. It's a very common saying that we have in our world today that a person, people will say promises are meant to be broken. But that wasn't the case. Back in the day, a person's word was their bond. When you said something, it, it, it had value. But in our world today, you have to have a legal contract or some agreement to guarantee the promise. And yet, even with the contracts and all the paperwork that we do for buying a house, a car, in marriage, in different areas of our lives that would require a contract, people still break those contracts. Here in the UAE, for instance, we hear of employers who are always asking for a contract from their employees. In fact, for most people, it is difficult for you to come to the UAE without a contract. And yet sometimes they still, when it fits or it, they are not in agreement with the original terms of the deal, they would break it insofar as sometimes not paying people or terminating them before the end of their contract. In our passage today, uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to these people, in, to, to his audience, and he's reminding them of the promises of God. He's reminding them of the certain nature of God's promises. In fact, he does it in five things, five marks, you could call them ingredients, to remind them that because of these things, which we are going to talk about, you should have full assurance that you will inherit the promises of God because unlike the promises that we have in our world today that are made by men, God is not a liar and his promises are certainly true. And so he outlines and gives us five things that we look at, five ingredients that should be a basis for us to be sure and have full assurance of the promises that God has made to us. And you might ask yourself, why did he have to remind this church in Hebrews to, in, in the letter to the Hebrews about the promises of God and the full assurance that they ought to have. So a quick background. The Christians to whom he was writing were doubting their faith. In fact, earlier on in, the, in chapter 6, he's talking to them and telling, reminding them that it is impossible for someone who has come to faith in Christ to lose his faith. These Christians were looking at their faith in the same way that they were looking at their faith in Jesus in the same way as they used to look at the law. A quick example is the law itself. You could not derive any full assurance of faith in the law. If at all you were going to get any form of assurance, you needed to make all the different sets and types of sacrifices over and over again. There was never one point in time where the children of Israel or the people who believed in the law were 100% sure that they, they were truly saved. To have that, there had to be this consistency of sacrifice. And so this, like these Christians, they lacked, these people to whom he's writing, they lacked this assurance and they were constantly having to go back to the foundations of the faith. In fact, he calls them the essential doctrines of Christ. They always had to be reminded. And instead of growing in maturity in faith, they were always having to be reminded consistently as though they were making a sacrifice again and again, as though Christ needed to die again. And so in this particular part of the scriptures that we are studying today, the author is telling them, hey, look, the promises of God are sure for those 
who have received him. In fact, he calls them, in verses 9, he says that we feel sure of the better things that belong to salvation. And just like these Christians to whom this letter is addressed, we too are guilty many times of lack of assurance. We live our lives as though we do not have assurance of the better things that belong to salvation in Christ Jesus. We easily put our faith in our careers, our jobs, our education, our connections. We rely on the promises that people make to us instead of the promises of God. And we end up being so self-centered, so self-conscious, so self or individualized Christians that we are not able to live out and in such a way that reflects those who have a sure foundation that they have and will inherit the promises of God. So today, I want to challenge us that now that you are saved, now that we have come to Christ in Jesus, now that you are part of the body of Christ, what else is there that grounds your assurance? Now that you're part of the body of Christ, what guarantees, what and where have you anchored your faith? What anchors you? What makes you want to stay a Christian? To be one who is fully immersed in faith and fellowship with the brothers in Christ, seeking to receive the promises of God. Praise the Lord. And so my goal this, this morning is I want to challenge us to find confidence in the promises of God. And like the author of Hebrews, I want us to search our hearts carefully as we consider the five things that he highlights for us and find out how are we doing in these areas and how can we be sure, how can we to be sure of our faith. And the first mark or ingredient that should give us assurance that we are saved and will inherit the promises of God is that we are doing the works of love. If you look at verses 10 in, of Hebrews chapter 6, the author starts by commending these Christians for their, tell, reminding them that God is just, that he is just and he will not overlook their works of love. He reminds them that God will not overlook their works of love, that they show to their fellow brothers and sisters. It is a kind of love that is affirmed with more than words. It is a servant kind of love, a love that is demonstrated in actions, in practical ways. We often encounter this kind of pattern in the New Testament with the early church. And a quick example is the Apostle Paul himself. He many times in the letters praised and, and commended the different churches for their works of love that they showed and demonstrated to those who were amongst them that were in in need and also those that supported him in his ministry. In fact, Jesus himself makes this claim and says, by the works that you do, that is how people will know that you are my disciples. In John chapter 13 and verses 34 through 35, I'll quickly read this scripture for us. This is what Jesus says. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Also, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Doing the works of love is part of what testifies to the world that we are children of God. And that in itself should give us confidence that we will in our faith that we will inherit the promises of God. Because if what we are doing testifies to 
who we are, then it means that is who we are in itself. Praise the Lord. Part of what gives us confidence that we are truly saved is the gospel fruitfulness that flows out of our acts of love to one another. It is interesting here that Jesus does not make it merely a suggestion. He actually says a new command that I give, it to, that I give to you. The thing about love is that it is a verb. Like my teacher in primary used to say it is a doing word. The way they would describe a verb, they'd say a verb is a doing word. Love is a doing word. It is a practical thing. It's an action. It shows. So when we look at how you treat people at church, your friends at work, when you ask someone, how are you? Or how was your week? Do you do it out of formality or do you really mean what you're doing? When we hear announcements, for instance, the need for more volunteers, are you going to stay back and let the burden of ministry stay with just a few people to shoulder this burden? When we look at this church to whom the letter of Hebrews is addressed, the writer says they were serving one another in verses 10. Verses 10, he says, in serving the saints as you still do, it was a servant kind of love. Are you sensitive to the needs of others? Or is everything about you? Friends, the evidence that we are truly saved and maturing is that we love one another. And that should ground and give us confidence that we too will inherit the promises of God. One of our Sunday evenings, we had a visitor visit our Sunday evening service of Fred, and he was asked to introduce himself. He was from Saudi, not a Christian. And in the service, after introducing himself, the thing that he said is like, what I'm most excited about is the kind of love that you guys have for one another. The love that we show for, towards each other testifies of God. In fact, even here in Hebrews, he says that the work and love that you have shown is for his name, for God's name. It testifies to God. It is not a self-centered love. It's not seeking to, 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 to glorify itself or to have credit. It's a love that is intent on glorifying Jesus. And if that's the kind of love that we have, then we can have that assurance. And so my challenge to us here, brothers and sisters, is let us continue in the works of love. If you are a Christian, if you are doing the works of love, then you should have assurance that you will inherit the promises of God. The times that you have generously given to the church, the times that you have made time at work to help people with the different assignments, where you have been vigilant and persisted in sharing the gospel with brothers, which is the greatest form of love we can show, in doing all those things, it's interesting that the author here starts by saying God is not unjust. God doesn't overlook these things. Our acts of love will be rewarded because our God is just. And he starts by reminding them of the justice of God as one thing that guarantees the reward. And so it's not only that we are doing the works of love, but that there is, going to, there is also a guarantee of a reward. And this is where the author now gives us the second ingredient, the second mark that should give us full assurance that it's not only doing the works of love, but also that our hope is in the right place. Our hope for the reward, the hope for, inter for, for, for the inheriting the promises. He talks about it in verses 12. The kind of hope that he's talking about. He says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith 
and patience inherit the promises of God. He actually started it in verses 11 where he said, I desire that in the same way that you have shown love to one another, in the same way, be honest and have full assurance of hope. And this is the hope. The hope that he's talking about is that we would inherit the promises of God. When we picture this kind of hope that he's calling us to, he, he actually he says to them that we should not be sluggish or lazy, but instead imitate those who through faith and patience were able to inherit these promises. Why does he say that? The reason is simply this. It is easy for us to give up when we do not see the reward of the things that we do or the works of love that we demonstrate to one another as brothers in Christ. It is easy for us to quit when we do not see the results of our faith. But here the author is reminding us, just as I want to challenge us, put your hope in the right place. The hope should be in the, the expectation of the inheritance of the promises of God for which we ought to be patient. And this is why in verses 12 he says, imitate the faith of and patience of those who inherited the promises. The things of God and the promises and the rewards that come through our acts and, and, and works of love to one another, those things sometimes will take time. They will take time and it requires us to be patient, to have faith that we will get these things. In fact, the promises here anticipate what happens in chapter 11 of, of a letter of Hebrews. You see a whole long list of people who through their faith were able to inherit the promises of God. But the unfortunate thing when we look at our, our Christianity today is we always want to receive the reward now. A common phrase and thing that happens back with the home church in Uganda is the name it and claim it. I will, whatever I want, I will, I will get it now. But that is wrong. The promises of God require time. And the, the truth is that the beauty and the most majestic promises that we are called to inherit, which is Christ himself, our precious reward, which is eternal life with Jesus Christ, that is kept for us at a certain time. And without faith and patience, what else can we have? How else can we have any assurance of these things? In fact, to receive or to be a Christian, you ought to put your faith in Christ hope in him. And so it's not just that we are doing the works of love, but also that our hope and faith of any kind of inheritance, of any kind of reward is in the right place. Whatever we get, whatever we receive in this life is but a foretaste of what is to come. And having our hope in the right place should give us that assurance that we would inherit the promises of God. It is one of those ingredients that when we look at, we can be sure that God is not a liar, that there is something more for us in the end. In fact, if I am to give us a quick example is the words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 19 through 22. He says, if we have hoped in this life only, if, we have, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are all of people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has risen from the dead. The first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. If our hope in this life as Christians is only for this life, 
Paul says to us, we are most of all to be pitied. So friends, where is your hope? Brothers and sisters, is it in your wisdom? Is it in your strength? Is it in your possessions? Is it in the academic qualifications, the connections and friends that you have? All those things will eventually pass away. There is more beyond this life for us to hope for. There is more that is expected of us, and we ought to be honest. Without that honestness, we cannot have this full assurance. And the challenge for us is to be honest, to look forward to, to be excited that as Christians, there is something better and something more glorious, an eternity with Jesus that we ought, and that in itself will shape the way we live our lives. When we know that our reward is, is greater and it is coming in the end, it shapes the way we live our lives. We do not live as though the world is living. I mean, that's why Paul says that we, would, we are most to be pitied. If we have hoped in Christ only for this life, to have the wealth, to have the prosperity, then why not give up on Christ and just go party and live like everyone else? But because our hope is in something greater, it shapes the way we live our lives. And that is the goal of why this, the author is reminding them that you need to have assurance. Without it, then almost it's worthless to believe in Christ if you do not have hope of something greater. Then there is no difference between you and someone who knows Christ. In fact, you would be suffering a loss. But what gives us confidence as Christians is that our hope is in the eternal promises of God, in Jesus Christ and Him being our most precious reward. And so far we have seen that the first ingredient or the first mark is that we should, for us to have full assurance of salvation in the promises of God is that we are doing the works of love. The second is that we have hope in our future inheritance. And now we will look at the second section of this letter, of this part of our scriptures, where the author uses the example of Abraham. As one of those who, in verses 12, he says, we should imitate, having received the promises of God. Abraham, and through Abraham, he shows us two other ingredients, the third and the fourth ingredient that we are going to look at. And, that is, and the third thing that we will look at first is that we should be holding firm to God's word, to God's promises, to the promises that are in God's word for us. Look at verses 13 and 15. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. This particular portion of scripture is a quotation from Genesis chapter 22 and verses 15 through to 18. And in there, I just want us to read it real quickly so that we can get the context. Verses 15, so Abraham had, God had asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and he had done it, but just before he could sacrifice Isaac, God provided this lamb. And so in verses 15, the, the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham and said, this is what the Bible says, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply you 
your offspring and the star, as the stars of the heavens, as the sun in the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Because Abraham had obeyed the voice of the Lord, God gave him, this was now a second promise, and this promise was even greater than the first promise. Abraham, the author tells us, having patiently waited, keywords here is patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Waiting speaks of a posture of trust, of dependence. Abraham held firmly to God's word to him. He obeyed it. He trusted the promises of God therein. And by, the, by that form of trust, he obtained the promise. And here obtain is not in the sense of getting another promise, but in the sense that it was fulfilled. The promises of God are sure because they are a testimony of his character, his unchangeable character, which the author of Hebrews talks about. In this particular section, he actually talks of the two unchangeable things, and some, sometimes people are always wondering, what are these two unchangeable things? The two unchangeable things, I'll just highlight quickly, then we'll talk about them specifically, is the promise that God has made to us in his word, and the oath by which he has sworn that he will do what he has said in his word. And this is what we are looking. We are looking first at the promise that God, God, the promises of God as a one example, a one of those unchangeable things by which it is impossible for God to lie. We as Christians like Abraham are heirs of the promises of God. And those promises have been articulated to us in the Holy Scriptures. And if we will obey the Scriptures, the Gospel that is in the Scriptures, which is the promises of God to us as the church today, we too will obtain the promises therein. Those promises, if we hold on to them, if we obey them and hold firm to the teaching and instruction, we too will obtain the promises just like Abraham. These promises reveal to us the character of God, who is not a man to lie. In Numbers 23, Numbers chapter 23 and verses 19 through 20. I'll get there. 23 verses 19 through 20. Balaam was making a declaration over the children of Israel and in this particular part, he, he mentions this phrase that God, verses 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What we have in the scriptures, brothers and sisters, is what God has said to us. What we have in the scriptures is what God has spoken to us. And just like we have seen in Numbers, what God has spoken, he will fulfill. He will bring to pass. This should give us full assurance in the word of God. This should cause us to have full confidence and dependence that the word of God is trustworthy. If the scriptures are that sure, then why not hold to it? What else can you hold on to? 
Is there anything more trustworthy apart from the word of God in our world today? Apart from the scriptures in your life, is there something else that you're holding on to? Is there something in your life that you're holding on to more than the promises of God that have been put in the scriptures? Are you depending on the promises that people make? The deals, the contracts? All of those can change. People will break the promises. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that by this, by the promises of God, it is impossible for him to lie. They are that sure. And sometimes what frustrates us as Christians is that in our mind we expect certain things from God that are actually not in his word. We expect God to fulfill certain things which are just references to things that he has spoken of or that we have had different preachers say, but they are not in the word of God. And that, it causes, I mean, for me, it is, it's, it, 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 it's a painful thing when back home you hear people twist scripture to milk out of it a certain promise for their life now that it did not actually say. A very common characteristic with the false gospel, that guarantee that is telling us that we sh- our best life is now. Many of my brothers who I know, it's sad, they, they twist the scriptures, try to make them fit into their idea of what they expect from God. But friends, let us go back to the scriptures. My exhortation to us is let us go back to the word of God and in there, let us find out for ourselves truthfully, prayerfully, what has God said to me? What has God put in this word for us today that we should be able to respond to, to act on and rest and and believe and hold on to. And so the first thing that we saw, just to remind, I just want to keep them in our mind, is that we should do the works of love. The second is that we should hope firmly in our future inheritance. The third is that we should hold firm to God's promises that have been articulated to us in his word. And the fourth thing is that we should be confident in God's ability. And this is the second thing. It, it, it's based on the second thing by which it is impossible for God to lie that the author of Hebrews tells us in verses 17 and 18. The oath that God has made should give us confidence in God's ability. Abraham obtained these two things from God. A promise that God would surely bless and multiply him, but also an oath from God. The promise was to bless him. The oath was God putting his honor, himself, on the line as the guarantor of that promise, giving certainty that he will surely do it. The oath, God swearing by his name, was not just a fancy, cool action. The scriptures tell us that he did it because there was no one greater, no name greater by which he himself could swear. So the oath here is a picture of God's greatness. There was nothing greater by which he could swear, and so he swore by himself. Abraham and the children of Israel consistently, the the practice of making an oath, in fact, the oath of Hebrews says it in, in, in verses 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes, an oath was a final word. An example of this we will see in Exodus chapter 22, Exodus chapter 22 and verses 10. 
sorry. This is what it says. If a man gives his neighbor, gives his, don his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be made between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand on his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall make no restitution. This was a common practice for, for them that if, if something bad happened, so if I gave you my donkey or an ox to take care of and something bad happened to it, I, you would have to swear an oath. And by, if you made an oath by, in, on the name of God or Yahweh, then I would be sure that you did not touch the donkey, that it wasn't your fault. And so it's, I will not make restitution for it. But if you read on later, he gives, if then the person has, ha, did something, they were negligent, they ignored, or the, the, the ox got hurt on his watch, then you would have to make restitution. And so the, oath, the, the practice of the oath was simply to act as evidence of truth, certainty. It was a measure of accountability of sorts. Essentially, if, even from the example that we have just read in Exodus, the one by whom you swear an oath is the one responsible for the result of bringing to pass what they have sworn. And so by God swearing an oath, it was God ultimately saying he's, in, he's accountable for the results of the promise that he had made to Abraham. Imagine what that, had, that meant for Abraham. To have Yahweh, God himself, swear by his own name and say that I will do it. That gives him the absolute assurance that he will inherit the promise. Unlike some of us, we, it's easy for us to... It's one thing to make a promise... But it's another thing altogether to guarantee that by all means, no matter what, that you will fulfill that promise. An example of something that happened recently, my dad was dropping a couple of guests back at the airport and my sister had lost her phone. It was, she lost her phone and he made a promise and said, on my way back, I'm going to give you some money so you can buy a phone for yourself. But then he stopped over at a restaurant to, just for a short break, and he was, someone pickpocketed his wallet and the money in it. And so when he got to the city, he had no money to give to her for a new phone. But he had made a promise. But something else came in the way of making that promise come to reality. Unlike men who are limited, by circumstances. When God makes an oath by himself, by his declaring his greatness, that it doesn't matter what the situation is, he will bring it to pass. It, there is no limitation, there is no unforeseen circumstance that will limit the certainty of God's promises. And that is what the oath meant, that is what Abraham had, and that is what we as believers in Christ also have is the certain nature of God being able to fulfill his promise that not even death could stop it. Sin separated us from God and he sent Christ and even death could not hold him. He purchased for us life eternal in Jesus Christ. 
And now by him, we all have access to God. We have that promise, and it is a sure promise. Knowing that our God, by his word, is not, has not only given us a promise, but has declared his ability to fulfill this promise, should spark confidence in us and our God to believe in him, confidence in his ability that he will do what he said he will do. There is no one greater, there is nothing greater, there is absolutely nothing that can limit his power to save, deliver, and restore, and even more to preserve us by his Holy Spirit until he fulfills his promise. And so let us, let us find confidence in our God. Without faith and confidence and trust in God, we cannot have a real and meaningful assurance. The very act of being saved requires confidence again and faith in Jesus' ability to save. How do we know that what Jesus did many years ago is sufficient for us today? Faith and confidence that what he did is enough. And that's the same certainty that we carry. It should remain in us that no matter what situations we face, no matter the kinds of setbacks we might encounter, we should be reminded that if the, what Christ did is sufficient for us, who himself was a promise from God, how about these other promises that he has made to us in the scriptures? They are certain and they are sure. And sometimes we may encounter situations in which we trusted God and it felt like we lost. Maybe you were unjustly treated, Maybe you had to suffer or struggle and try to make ends meet and you were holding firm to the promises of God, being confident in them. I still want to encourage you that even in the lowest of moments, even when it doesn't seem to be going right, let us trust God. Let us stand firm and keep trusting him because there is nothing else more sure than him. He is sovereign over everything and his sovereignty cannot be separated from his other attributes, his justice, that one day the things that we feel like we have lost, he will judge the wrong that happened to us. He will restore the things that we have lost in the kingdom that is to come. And having that confidence comes from knowing that we have both a promise and an oath from God himself. The author reinforces this unchangeable character and nature of God to us and his goal was to encourage these believers here, to find encouragement and in the nature of God and who he is as a person. And he goes on to say to them that in, in, verses, in verses 18, he says, So that by two unchangeable things it is impossible for God to lie. Who himself, who, it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We as a church are the refugees who must flee to God who is our refuge, who is stronger, who is greater, so that we might find in him encouragement, so that we can lay hold of the hope that is before us. The faithfulness of God, his word, and the certainty of his promises that are guaranteed by his oath 
are not just theological prepositions to us. They are unchangeable realities. They are unchangeable realities. And we should find confidence in that. Now, the, just to review what we have seen so far, we have seen four of these marks or ingredients that should give us assurance of our own salvation. The first, I will repeat again, is that we are doing the works of love. The second is that we have hope, and our hope is in the future inheritance and the promises of God that are to come. The second is that we are holding firm to the promises of God that are in his word. The fourth is that we are confident in God's ability, being confident in God's ability, that is guaranteed by his oath. And so the fifth ingredient the author gives us is that we, are, we should have anchored our souls in Jesus. We see this in verses 19, where it says that we have this sure and steadfast anchor for of the soul, a hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain. What does, what does that mean? What does he mean by saying that we have a steadfast anchor for our souls? Well, I think he's telling them that there is something that you can trust to ground your souls, to keep you from drifting away from the shore, to keep you from going back and away from, the, from, the des from your destination and from your path, away from the safe place away from the harbor. Ships dock at this, at a harbor. They are at a safe place, and if they are not, if the anchor is not dropped, they could easily drift off. When the storm comes, or even just a thick wave can, over time, push it back into the raging seas. Like this audience to whom the letter is written to, we may claim to be saved that we are in the safe place, that we are in the harbor. We may claim or think that now that I'm in the church, now that I come to the church, I'm, I'm safe. But that is not enough, friends. The troubles and the temptations of this life, we are not immune to them. The winds of the, of the storms of life, we are not immune to them. Coming to church is not enough. Thinking that you're a Christian is not enough. You need to be anchored. You need to be sure. Are you sure that you have hoped in Christ? In verses 19, he says, we have this, I'll repeat, he says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. And this anchor he describes to us is a hope. The anchor is a hope. A hope, he tells us, that has entered the inner place behind the curtain. And let's pause for a moment there and think. What would, it mean to, what would it have meant to this audience when they hear that there is a hope that has entered behind the curtain? An easy guess is for the Jews who, to whom this letter was addressed, the immediate thing that comes in their mind when they hear the inner place behind the curtain is the Holy of Holies. And what do we know about the Holy of Holies? Well, quick picture just to remind us is that this was a place, the Holy of Holies was a place where the priest entered once a year on the Day of Atonement to make a blood sacrifice of an animal in order to turn away the wrath of God. 
from Israel. But when you look at verses 20, it is not an ordinary priest who is going in. It is not their pastor, it is not their leaders who are going in. It is Jesus who is the one behind the curtain. It is Jesus who has entered behind the curtain. Jesus is the hope that has entered the inner place. The Holy of Holies offering his own blood that he shed on the cross for our sin. And not that of animals. His own blood sacrificing himself on our behalf. He is our forerunner who has gone before us to fulfill all that, the just all that the just requirement of God needed. He has purchased our salvation for us. And so let us hope in him. His work for our sake. He goes on to say that Jesus is come, having, has come and he has become a priest, a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And just to... Just to to explain a little about that is to, a good question for us to ask is who is Melchizedek and Genesis 14 verses 18 gives us a quick picture of what it, who he was Melchizedek in chapter 14 of Genesis verses 18 the Bible tells us and Melchizedek he was a king of Salem he brought out bread and wine, and he was, a high, he was a priest of the Most High God. So the picture that he's making that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek is that he is a priest of God. He's not a priest like those from among the men who are imperfect and who themselves had to make sacrifices for themselves to be sure that what they were doing was right. Jesus is a perfect priest. And the sacrifice that he has made for us is sufficient enough. He has been designated by God, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, 9 through 10, in the few verses before. He has been designated by God, not just... This one is so good, I just have to read it. Hebrews chapter, 9, chapter 5 and verses 9. He says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek he has been designated by God not just for the forgiveness of sin but he has become the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey the source of eternal life friends do you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Are you sure of where you have anchored your soul? If we were to do a deep dive to find out where the anchor of your life is, will it be sure? Will it be Jesus? Or will it be something else? I want to submit to us that there is no greater foundation, there is no greater place, no greater and more sure place for our souls than in Jesus Christ. He is the one who is behind the curtain. He has faced the wrath of God and he is our high priest. Hope in him and you will escape the wrath of God. Whether you, you like it or not, one day we all have to go behind the curtain. One day we all have to face the most holy God in the Holy of Holies. And either you will go there 
by the invitation of the high priest himself who has gone and is calling us and drawing us in, or you will go on your own account. And the only thing that gives us any form of assurance that we'll inherit the promises of God is that we have something more sure. We have someone that has guaranteed our safety that we will, that once we come face to face with God, he will be able to reward us. And maybe you're here and your soul is not anchored in Jesus. I want to plead with you to run to him. Find refuge in him. There is nothing in this world that can give you any surety. Money will pass away. The jobs come and go. The wealth will pass away. Even your good works are not enough. Only hope in Jesus is sure. Only what Christ has done for us is sure. And so I would plead with you to put your faith in him while you still can. And for you, brothers and sisters who have hoped in Christ, let this hope produce confidence. Let this hope produce earnestness. Let this hope produce eagerness for us. Let us hunger to have fellowship with our Heavenly Father, to boldly, to be able to boldly approach Him in our prayer times, in our study of the Word and the Scriptures, when we gather as brothers and sisters together like we are today. Let us come boldly, sure of what we have in Christ, sure of what is to come. And let the things that fuel our confidence be those five things. And let us hope in him until the day he will ultimately call us home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the reminder that we have from the scriptures that we should have assurance of what we have in you, of the better things that belong to salvation. Help us, Father, to do the works of love, to practically love our brothers and sisters, to serve one another, not for our own praises, but so that you can be glorified. Help us to have full assurance of the promises that you have for us, the promises that we will inherit in Christ, that are beyond the things of this life. Help us to live in such a way that we anticipate what you have prepared for us in your eternal kingdom. Help us, God, to hold firm to the truth of your word, that in times of despair, in times when we are, we are faced with doubt, that we would be drawn to the scriptures, that we would remind ourselves of what you have spoken to us in your word. Help us, God, to be confident, to remind us by your spirit of your ability to save, that there is nothing, no one, no situation that is too hard for you, that you are more than able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask and more so the things that you have promised us in your word. And most importantly, Father, we pray that you would help us to have our souls anchored in you. Let us not lose sight of what we have in Jesus. Let us not lose sight of what he has done for us on the cross. And Father, I pray that you would, you would equip us and help us to stay in unity, in fellowship with one another, to the glory of your name. This we ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.